Our world constantly cycles through drought and flooding, drenching one side while parching another. It may seem erratic at times, but it's all Mother Nature's way of keeping the balance. And to the people that are on the ground that rely on the water for food and business, it may seem unfair. At the end of the day, when people are caught in the crossfire of extreme rainfall and flooding events, there are some that are more impacted than others. Is that really fair? Today, we're talking to Andrew Kruchkevich, who has been studying these impacts and how we as a society can improve to avoid the extent of them. Andrew, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So yeah, I see your background here. So the first question I usually ask Weather Geeks guests is, how'd you become a Weather Geek? First of all, are you a Weather Geek? And if so, how'd you become one? I'm definitely a weather geek. Yeah, I'm a weather geek, but I don't think I realized it <laughs> until a bit later on. But yeah, I mean, the one of the reasons why I became a weather geek from a very young age, um, I was fascinated by the weather, as I'm sure many weather geeks say. Um, but I remember uh, quite vividly in my youth. Uh, so essentially, my my mother was living up in Northwest Connecticut and my father was living down like just outside New York city. And there was a lot of back and forth, you know, going up there and it's on a, on the map. It's, there's really, it's really not that in terms of spatial extent, it's not very far, but in terms of an area right on the Long Island Sound, like the coastline versus you start getting into a little bit of topography, the gradients, the temperature gradients uh, were extremely tight. And I remember as a little kid, just being put on the train, going all the way up many times by myself, looking out the window and just seeing, you know, just watching the rain go into more of like a mixed precipitation type setup. And then you get a little bit of topography. Then by the end of the train line, when my mother come pick me up, we'd have snow, you know, and as a little kid, it was amazing in many ways. It was also nice because we might have a snow day the next day. Um, but I remember that as, as an experience being like, how is this possible? I mean, yeah. it, you know, and it was a very emotional situation too, just kind of getting shuttled, sh- shuttled around like through the parents. So I had a many, t- I had a lot of time to think to myself while on this train, and just, yeah, it really just captured my interest, and that led to um, just exploration about why is this happening. Um, I I watched the Weather Channel quite a bit, watching the local forecasts and looking at the local. Uh, Watching the um, <clears throat> the radar was really cool back then when I was just starting to understand what that meant. And then also Hurricane Andrew. I mean, my name is Andrew, and uh, I was a young young kid back then, and that was something that really definitely, I thought it was really cool. You know, we have this big See, event. So you're definitely one of us. So welcome to the fold <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I want to give you a little bit of Andrew's background so that you uh, set the context for his expertise in the discussion today. He's a senior staff associate at Columbia Climate School's International Research Institute for Climate and Society. He also is a graduate of Columbia University, specializing in remote sensing and mapping of atmospheric and meteorological variables. And I definitely want to ask him about that because I come from a NASA background, too. So I suspect satellites are somewhere in his background. Mm -hmm. Uh, He also interned at NASA himself, developing uh, algorithms to monitor inundation and land cover in East Africa. Uh, with a focus on applications for health and humanitarian sectors. So, you know, even, Andrew, as we are recording this podcast, Mm -hmm. we have seen tremendous flooding in California, for example, uh, related to atmospheric river storms, uh, deepening bomb cyclones and so forth. Uh, I think generally people have a sense of flooding. I mean, we've talked Mm -hmm. about heat waves, we talked about hurricanes and various things, but heat 
kind of creeps up on people in some ways. Flooding is kind of in your face. You see it happening, yet there are still challenges with it from uh, many perspectives. So first of all, mm-hmm. what got you interested in studying flooding and inundation? Yes. Yeah, it's one of the, one of the aspects of flooding is just the various types of flooding. You know, and this was always something that was of interest to me. Um, even growing up in in the New York area, we ha- were we're a place that that experiences different types of floods. You know, we have storm surge events, we have coastal flooding events that may or may not be linked to storm surge. We have very intense precipitation-induced floods, such as flash floods. We have riverine flood events. So it was always interesting to me to look at the National Weather Service products and be like, wow, there's so many different types of, of floods and flood watches and flood warnings. And especially becoming more interested in this in the 90s, I was like, wow, not only are the message the messages very different when we talk about what types of floods may occur, the ways to forecast them are also quite different. Okay, there might be some overlap. But then what really captured my, t- my attention and allowed me to, 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 let's say, set off on a career of, of applied meteorology is just what actions can, can someone take? What actions can the community take? What actions can individual people take? What actions should be suggested you know, by, by official sources. And then also what, what's the, what are the dynamics around like being, being in this privileged position to instruct people to do something, you know, and this is something we see here in the U S for sure. But as you said, like, as you mentioned in my bio, a lot of my work is, is international. And that's really what, what captured my attention with floods. Um, I've had the, the opportunity and the privilege to work in the humanitarian sector with groups such as the Red Cross and some of the UN agencies and see it firsthand. You know, uh, there, one of the stories that um, that I tell is that I had the opportunity to work in Malawi, in, which is a country in Southeast Africa, um, r- during and after the 2015 floods there. And that really changed my perspective on what does it mean to have a rainfall forecast? What does it mean to have a flood forecast? What does it mean to prioritize and deprioritize actions before a flood, even when you have the information available? So this idea of having the data, but not necessarily always having the resources, you know, and the logistics in place to act on the data. These are things that have really driven driven my career. But a lot of it comes down to that experience of, of supporting the Red Cross in Malawi in 2015. I'm speaking with Andrew Kuchkevich from Colombia. And, you know, one thing that you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of things. And I always like to put my my. Um, position in the place of the listeners of Weather Geeks podcast, that we have a range of background. So I want to kind of circle back and just do a little quick 101 on the different types of floods that you mentioned, because you and I know what they are, Mm -hmm. but you mentioned riverine flooding, you mentioned flash flooding. Um, We've seen sustained flooding from the atmospheric rivers out in California, Um, compound flooding events. So there, as you noted, there are a host of flooding events. So give us a 101, and we might not touch them all, but give us a 101 on just some of the types of flooding events so that our listeners can be oriented oriented for our conversation today. Yes. Yeah, I'll I'll be happy to. So as you said, there's many types, and this is not meant to be an exhaustive list, um, but if we take a U.S.-centric approach on doing this, I usually say there's three primary types of of floods that occur here in the U.S. Um, 
we see riverine flows, which essentially is we have a river basin and then at different times for different reasons, the, the water that is normally in that river basin exceeds the banks of the river and then flows onto land that is normally or at least seasonally dry. So we call a riverine flood. Uh, coastal flooding is a little more complicated, but as, as the name implies, uh, you need a coastline to have a coastal flooding. Sometimes this happens um, in advance of a tropical cyclone, for example, such as a hurricane. You get the rise in the push of the ocean coming onto land, and that's storm surge, storm surge flooding, uh, which is a type of coastal flooding. There's also other types of coastal flooding. Sometimes in Florida, we see king tides, which lead to uh, what they sometimes call sunny day flooding. You know, yeah, you know, we see that here in Georgia too. Sometimes on our coast, yeah, yes, in various parts of the coast. So that's also kind of classified under the coastal flooding uh, type. But then flash flooding, and this is really where my, my research, you know, and the applications of my research lies. Flash flooding is the most fascinating type, in my opinion. You could have various types of flash floods. Actually, some of our research right now is looking at further disaggregation of types of flash floods, both from a forecasting perspective and then really from an action perspective, what you would do. But one of the types of flash floods, one of the types is, uh, are the types of flash floods that are caused by intense precipitation. Intense precipitation over a somewhat localized area over in, the, in that precipitation over a, a shorter period of time. This is the, the, the usual type of flash flood that most of us think about here in the U.S. However, depending on where you go in the U.S., flash floods could mean very different things. You know, in the desert southwest, for example, sometimes when you don't actually need that much precipitation, but you see these dry, these normally dry basins. Uh, fill up with water really quickly. Um, that's very different than a flash flood in California, such as what we're seeing in uh, as a result of the the atmospheric rivers. I mean, still, heavy precipitation is causing those events. Um, but then, if we think about the term "causing," you know, that leads us to think more about the urban type of floods, you know, the built environment type of floods, because when we think about causing causes. Now, we need to think about the, the intense precipitation, but we also need to think about the decisions that we make as a society, the decisions that we make to have certain types of drainage systems, the decisions to not keep those drainage systems up to date, or decisions to keep those drainage systems up to date in certain communities and perhaps in other communities, it's not quite a priority. So these are very important factors when we're thinking about those three, let's say, overarching categories of floods we see in the U.S. with coastal, with riverine, and flash floods. Yeah, and I would add to that, given that this is an area where I've done research myself, just the imperviousness that we see in urban spaces, too. That changes the water cycle and changes the way the water runs off of, as compared to a natural landscape. When I come back, we're going to dive more into what Andrew and his research colleagues are up to. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking. With, are, are you Dr. Andrew Kruchkevich? So uh, 
I am not Dr. Grandy Kurtzkevich. I think that's a story in itself. <laughs> but there were, there were, I did have some opportunities to pursue a PhD, but I also had the opportunity to apply my my meteorological research and interest with the humanitarian sector at the same yeah. time. But yeah. the only, only reason I ask that is because you, your your work is very well imprinted in the community. Uh, and and I think this is a really nice story about how you don't need to have a PhD uh, in this field and really, excuse me, <clears throat> do really impactful work because I'm, I'm very familiar with your work and I've wanted to talk to you for some time. So really, you know, grateful that you took the time to join us on, on the, on the show. Um, you mentioned earlier remote sensing and early warning systems and working in global places. Give the listeners of Weather Geeks a perspective on uh, what that means, remote sensing, first of all, and why we need to use that particular perspective to do what you do. Yeah, I'll be I'll be glad to. So. There's different. So when we when we talk about remote sensing, we're talking about understanding the conditions. You know, in this, it, it, we're understanding the conditions um, at a location uh, where where we are are currently where we are currently not there. That's not the best definition, but I'll try to expand on that a bit. Um, and basically, there's different ways to do that. I mean, that's where the remote comes from. Remote comes from the fact that we are not in the location that we're trying to understand more about. Uh, one of the ways that we could learn more about conditions in a, in a distant location uh, is use, is using satellites. Uh, this is this is a, a increasingly more common method of understanding um, atmospheric conditions, environmental conditions, um, conditions of of the ocean surface, for example. And the way we do that is using different types of satellites. NASA is one of the leaders in in producing satellites. And then we also need the sensor component, which is on board satellites. And the sensor is the the device, the mechanism that allows us to understand about the conditions that are are very far off from where for we are and we're trying to to glean some insight about about what is happening now there's different types of sensors you know we have synthetic aperture radar we have passive microwave we could go on uh, that could be a podcast in itself oh absolutely but, <laughs> maybe we'll do it we'll have you back <laughs> yeah but my interest is less in the engineering and the design of the sensors my interest is being part of um, the process of designing programs to to yeah, make sure that the satellites that are produced in the data that is produced from the satellite missions, making sure that data has a, a higher likelihood of being of being used, being used not only for research. Research is definitely a worthy cause um, of, of use of data, but there's many types of decisions that could potentially be informed by satellite data, by remote sensing data. And it's not going to happen just because the data is available. There's many steps in between acquisition of the data, post-processing of the data, cleaning of the data, tailoring the data, um, disseminating the data in a way, also working on capacity building from a user and decision-making side so they have almost the opportunity to ask questions about what type of data is appropriate. There's a lot of work on that translation, you know, not only of the satellite data to the decision-making context, but also which is really important. And a lot of the work that I do is translating the actions within the humanitarian community, translating the decisions, translating the data, you know, from the humanitarian community back 
to the folks that are that are building the algorithms and trying to shift the narrative from top down here's the data make decisions to it to you know what we when we're designing these algorithms we need to understand what's happening on the ground at a far earlier stage yeah and that's particularly important in places places like africa and asia mm-hmm. and some of the places that may have um poorly developed networks of observations and so forth and i want to get back to that but i want to come back to the us because we have been talking a lot about atmospheric rivers mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I want to get your take because it's really a nice sort of synthesis of what you just said, because satellites are used to monitor this water vapor, these narrow plumes of water vapor moving across perhaps the Pacific or either other basins. And I've seen some misreporting, frankly, on the term atmospheric river, because the atmospheric river itself is just the water vapor in those narrow plumes. There actually has to be some type of meteorological or or graphic conversion to produce rainfall. And that's I've seen things referred to as rivers of rainfall and things yeah, like yeah. that. And so I wanted to get your overall take on this term atmospheric river, what we're seeing in California, because there's a decision making component, uh, because, again, 30 to 50 percent of the West Coast rainfall comes from these rivers uh, induced systems. So j- overall thoughts on atmospheric yeah. rivers, flooding associated with them and decision making and on the ground um, perspective. Yes. No, I'm, I'm very glad that you that you brought this up. I, I struggle sometimes when, when I think about uh, the t- these the emergence of terms that speak to speak to um, extreme, let's say, weather and climate events. I, I, I do struggle. And I think it's part of me being in this privileged position of being part of the scientific community, understanding the research, the research, well, most of the research, and that, but then also having insight and being somewhat part of the decision-making community and seeing how things get misconstrued and seeing how on one hand, raising awareness using terms like bomb cyclone or atmospheric river, raising awareness is one thing and that's important, but we should not, you know, we should not think that that's, that's helping uh, in all, in all ways when related to decision-making. And I think it's our responsibility as scientists to think more about, even down to the terminology we use, who are the people that are being Im- impacted by that use of terminology? What systems and processes are in place? You know, what what does if we're using that terminology, are there early warning, not just messages, but are there systems and processes to take that message and does that act as a, a trigger for subsequent actions to take place? And if so, are the most traditional, traditionally underserved populations receiving benefit from those actions? So those are the questions that I think about when I try to when when I try to when I try to think about the appropriateness of terms. Sure, in terms of headlines, in terms of clicks, and in terms of over like a very higher order awareness, I guess media awareness. This is also happening right now with the potential El Nino that people are talking about. I'm getting a lot of requests about this. Let's let's vector there for a second, because I know we've heard quite a bit of discussion about the triple dip La Nina. We've had Mm -hmm. these sort of consecutive uh, La Ninas, but there are rumblings of a a flip over to a neutral to an El Nino state. So give us the rundown on that to the heavy. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot. So IRI where I work, we do, um, we, we do make seasonal forecasts and there's a lot of discussion right now. So I'll have to say my biggest plug is, is keep an eye on the, the International Research Institute for Climate Society webpage. And we have all of our uh, ENSO forecasting uh, tools and seasonal forecast tools there. 
um, part of the climate school at Columbia University. So it's, it's all there. And yeah, r- right now, what I could say is there, there is an indication that the, the, the La Nina conditions that we've seen over the past couple of years, things are changing, you know, and in the coming months, we are likely to see a change, at least away from La Nina. Now, the, dis- this, the discussion is, will we go into a neutral phase? Will there be a quick transition to an El Nino phase? We really, we really can't say too much at this point. Um, but that will change. That'll change in the coming months. It'll definitely change after what we call the spring predictability barrier. So definitely keep an eye on, on, on the, the products now. But let's say after June, July and August, we'll have a much better sense of what's going to happen the coming, um, the coming uh, months after that. But yeah, this, these are what, what happens is that now there is an awareness. And I think this is, a, I think this is part of the success of communicating climate and weather and communicating the risks. Now, when El Nino and La Nina is in the news, uh, there is an, uh, an awareness and people start asking questions and the humanitarian sector is activated, you know, and what does this mean? Does it mean more heat waves? You know, does it mean more floods? Like, where is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? And the when and the where and the to what extent are really the, the most important questions when we're talking about impacts. You know, so I try to break it down there. Like, yes, we could be shifting into into El Nino, but you know what? We could get floods at any at any phase of Enso. Yes, there's some areas that have increased likelihood of in, enhanced precipitation, and that could mean increased likelihood of of flooding, for example. But there's a lot that needs to be done to translate these forecasts down to the impact side. Yeah, this is a great point. And as as you're listening to us and we're throwing around these uh, acronyms like an ENSO, that's the El Nino Southern Oscillation. It's a part of this broader sort of cyclical process that involves El Nino, the warm phase of the anomaly in the Pacific and La Nina, the cold phase, both of which impact our weather where you live through these teleconnections and so forth. And so, yeah, as we think about sort of what what Andrew does and think about flooding in remote places and the implications, particularly for vulnerable or underserved or marginalized communities, um, I agree with you. You said something that really resonated strongly with me because I'm old enough to be in this field when people still didn't really understand what the implications of El Nino and La Nina are. But now people start asking questions. Well, that, does that mean a more active or less active hurricane season? Does that mean more drought over the southeastern U.S. or more flooding over parts of Africa? And then decisions can start to be made or at least planning for those decisions. So I want to kind of circle to that, Mm -hmm. Uh, given your work um, in places like Asia and Africa, what's the sort of response and planning process in, say, these developing countries as opposed to more developed places like the United States from the standpoint of both the actual flood event, their perspectives on climate change and overall emergency response? Yeah, I, I I could answer that question. So I'm glad I'm very glad we're, we're highlighting these parts of of what it means to develop an early warning system, you know, or in what we what we're trying to call more an early warning, early action system, moving past the warning to what does it take, you know, to to take action, where does the funding come from, you know, when we have a forecast, what are the thresholds, what are the critical thresholds within the forecast at at what lead time, averaged over what spatial scale, how much funding is needed. You know, to take some some type of substantive action, and that's my best answer. My my first answer to your question. That's 
the, the, the most difficult part. What actions can be taken in which areas? Um, in a in a developing country context, well, developing country also varies depending on where you are. But I'll give an example of Ecuador. So one of the projects that I'm, I'm PI on now, NASA funded project, uh, is working with the Ecuadorian um, Red Cross to develop the first flash flood early warning, early action system. And yes, we we have the the national. Weather service there, it's called Inami. They, there are forecasts that are produced, precipitation forecasts, and there are d- different types of ways that these forecasts are disseminated to, to groups such as Red Cross. However, it's a good example of even if an organization wants to take action, the steps between ta- understanding the data, accessing the data, and then prioritizing where and when to take action are the biggest questions. So part of the part of our project is really that. You know, our project is not only about uh, developing new flash flood forecasts. It's not only about understanding the socioeconomic implications of flash floods. Um, and we have papers written on on those topics um, because that's also what you need to do in in the scientific field. But yeah, a lot of it is about the standard operating procedures around the early warning system. How do you move from early warning to early action? Where is the funding? Where can the funding be accessed from? How frequently you know, can an organization take what we're calling anticipatory action? And these are all questions that we're still in the process of, of working through. But it comes down to the action. You could have a perfect forecast, but if action cannot be taken, then within many contexts, such as developing country context, humanitarian context, especially fragile context and complex situations, then not only can that perfect forecast, let's just say, be unusable, but it could also be detrimental. And I think that's a really important point that I've learned from working in a variety of contexts. Me being present in discussions many times can be disruptive. There's a push for scientists to be part of decision-making in humanitarian context, but we need to understand that our position there influences many things just by being there. And that's not only being a scientist, it's being a scientist from the US. It's, there's, if you want to get into the space, which I encourage meteorologists and fellow geeks to, to consider, but it's a lot more about making cool maps and fancy visualizations and cool apps. It's really about understanding the, yeah, the implications of what it means to influence. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and we're talking about the socioeconomic impact of floods with one of the uh, world's leading experts in this topic. And he just made a really interesting point relative to sort of the developing world. But some of those points resonate with me here in the U.S. as well. I think you said something about if you can be the perfect forecast with the perfect model, the perfect radar estimate, the perfect satellite observation. But if the information was not actionable to someone for whatever reason, they didn't hear it. They didn't understand the colors on the map. Or there was no plan of action for that information, then what what value is the forecast? And I think that is something that we see increasingly uh, at the intersection of the weather climate community. 
I, I wanted to get your take because, again, you work in places that are particularly vulnerable to these hydro meteorological, hydroclimatic extremes, drought and flooding, particularly. We know that climate is changing. I mean, there's really no debate about that anymore. Um, if then if there is that that you just kind of need to walk away from that person because the, the science is pretty clear. But how do how do we frame prepare preparation of these sort of planning and warning systems with that context in mind? Yes. No, this this is something that well, I'll say when I when I started working internationally, I I didn't know how how to go about the having these these types of discussions. And and also through through my work, I've been to the, the global climate conference, the COP, uh, a few different times to be part and just listen what the higher level policy discussions are relative to preparedness, anticipatory action, essentially adaptation, larger scale adaptation. You know, climate is changing, climate is evolving. Yes, we need we need to take mitigation actions, but also the reality is things are happening now, and in some areas we're seeing an enhancement of impact. And that's for a variety of reasons. It's because of more intense meteorological extremes. And also it's because of a lack of, of sufficient planning and a continuation of deprioritizing the populations that have been deprioritized for a very long time. So it's again, it goes back to this idea of, of it's complex. You know, it's a good example of how climate and the weather are really integrated in so many parts of, of the socioeconomic experience. You know, and I think this goes back to to me being a little kid, just having a lot to think about <laughs> on those train rides and and thinking about how thinking just being going through these very large nor'easters and seeing how you hit these gradients of change, you know, and thinking about how that relates to other things that are going on. It's a very small scale um, example of bigger picture. You know, these type of events impact very high level policy discussions. These impact national level discussions, community level, <laughs> culture, like these things are all integrated. So yeah, but how do we bring that into doing something now? And in the international context, in many countries, it's not a question about is climate change making things worse? It's we need to, to figure out what to do and we need to prioritize. The resources aren't available to do everything now. So it comes down to a prioritization exercise. And unfortunately, in many places, the people that have the loudest voice or in the position of power will have a lot of say of what areas and what communities get prioritized. So sometimes there's discussions, um, and I'm, I'm thinking about my work in the, the Rohingya refugee camp, in, which is a refugee camp in Bangladesh, one of the largest in the world. So I was working with the UN, um, some UN agencies there to design uh, early warning um, systems related to floods and, and landslides. And I remember talking to some of the local community leaders there within the refugee camp. It's hard to describe what the refugee camp situation was, but essentially in that part of Bangladesh, there was rapid transformation of the landscape, terraforming of the hills, cutting downs of trees. Even if you had a hydrologic model in that area, it would actually be misleading because the land is changing so quickly. So what, so what do you do? You know, what do you do in that context? And I remember we we met with some of the local community leaders and the situation that emerged was this isn't a type of exercise where you could even identify who the most vulnerable are. Like it was very uncomfortable even talking about the most vulnerable. This is a situation where you had one million of, by definition, the most vulnerable people in the world, you know, that have gone through terrible things 
and are settled here with very little. So how do you prioritize? The reality is you have to help some people first. You know, you have to build a system that is to some extent equitable and acknowledge that there's going to be some people that benefit less from others. And if you don't acknowledge that, the system has very little chance of functioning um, or you're just pretending <laughs> that it's functioning in a way. So I think even in the U.S., as you said, this exists. We saw this with Ida here in New York City where we saw, I, I forget the final total, 30, approximately 30 people die, mostly in their households. Yeah, some basement flooding and so forth, vulnerable communities for sure. And this and this is happening more and more. And like we need to, it, something that I, that I think, I've been thinking a lot about late, late, lately, and I think this does tie into the atmospheric rivers. We did see some instances of unhoused people uh, die in the in the atmospheric river related flood, and I think wind, wind, wind elements of that, and that juxtaposed to stories of people's uh, everyday disruption. You know, like oh well, I couldn't go to the store, or hearing stories of how we got trapped in our community, isolated in our, in our, in our community for a few days. And like, listen, I don't want anyone to be isolated, but being isolated in your very large mansion with plenty of food compared to people actually losing their lives, you know, like these are very different types of impacts. And it's hard to say, it's hard to say that people don't have the right to, to feel (laughs) to feel what they want to feel. But I think we need to do a better job at understanding like the differences in impact and being more careful in the way that we communicate uh, the, the disruption, you know, of life relative to disasters. This could be, yeah. this is international and here in the U S as well. Yeah. You just really kind of nailed the, put hit the nail on the head in terms of the, you know, construct the vulnerability and resiliency, because all of us are impacted and exposed to mm-hmm. these events, but there are people that are more sensitive to them. And even after the exposure and sensitivity have the ability to bounce back, you know, you know, if there's a hurricane approaching and I happen to live on the coast, I mean, I have the means to take my family and move inland and stay in a hotel for five days. And I yeah. know that I've got decent insurance to come back if my home is destroyed. I mean, those are inconveniences and problems for me, but, you know, compared to someone standing in New Orleans that has nowhere to go and there's a cat four, cat five storm and surge and flooding, you know, they're different realities. And so I think you really nailed that on the head in terms of framing that discussion. You mentioned earlier on where you get your, your organizations out there on the website and social media. Can you point us to where people can find more on you or IRI or some of what you're up to in either the social media space or on the web? Yes. So I will, the yeah, best so he's, place. He's looking it up on as, as we speak here. So uh, I'll, I'll give him a chance to do that. I really appreciate, by the way, this has been a really engaging conversation as I knew it would, but, um, and I, I would mention, I, I mentioned IRI a, a few uh, minutes ago when we introduced this episode, it is one of the premier sort of climate organizations out there at Columbia. So, so where, where can we find you on, on, on the web and social media? Yeah. So, IRI can be found. It's iri.columbia.edu is the okay. IRI website. But then also, um, as part of Columbia, uh, we are developing a new climate school. So this is going to be a, a part of Columbia at a, at a higher level. So if you're interested in that, you could look up climate.columbia.edu. I actually teach within the climate school within a graduate program called the Climate and Society 
graduate program if people are interested in that. And yeah, I'm increasingly becoming active on social media. I'm trying to. So I have my Twitter handle is WX Pizza, WX, because I think everybody knows what that stands for, but pizza because I came up with the handle many years ago when <laughs> I didn't really know what to put. Well, there's got to there's got, you know, this is weather geeks. <laughs> I've got to dig into that a little bit more. I mean, is there some other story behind why you chose pizza at least? Uh, it, the story is simple. I just am a big pizza fan. So my, my last, you can tell about my last name. My father, my father was, is Polish. He's born in Poland. Actually, my family, father came over on a boat from Poland in the sixties. Uh, but my mother's family is Italian, like New York, Italian, American. Yeah, so sure. So we ate a lot yeah. of pizza. Yeah. Any, any particular fave pizza <laughs> toppings? Oh, well, the the best is is Sally's Pizza, New Haven, Connecticut. Okay, it's it's one of the more famous ones. A specific style of pizza. It's very good. However, things are changing with Sally's. There's new ownership. I mean, I had the same ownership for about seventy years. I mean, I became friends with some of the owners and have amazing stories of the people you meet in in Sally's Sally's Pizza. Um, but yeah, that's the best place. I still recommend going, but it's very different than it was 20 years ago. But I live in Brooklyn now, and there's a ton of good places in Brooklyn. I've been there for 50 years, and my favorite are just some of the local slice slice shops. Honestly, you know, yeah, I don't, yeah we I, got a we got a good one in Athens called Little Italy, and shout out to Antico Pizza in Atlanta as well. Big good pizza there if you're in the Atlanta area. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this has been a great. Yeah, we go all over the place with weather geeks, and I really appreciate you joining us. We have to get out of here. I could I could talk with Andrew for a while, but before we do, we do have a Geek of the Week this week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Jim Dickinson. Jim is a retired engineer who loves the snow, especially crisp, clean, and white snow, which is perfect for snowshoeing. His most memorable weather event was being blown horizontally across the summit of Wright Peak in the Adirondacks due to monstrous winds. Jim, we, we, we may have to get you on Weather Geeks to hear that story one day, but congratulations on being our Geek of the Week. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's really nice to, to talk, talk with you and, and if anyone is interested in, in these topics, please reach out. Hey, and thank you all for listening. Welcome to 2023. We've got a really good lineup of podcasts ahead for the year. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time. <laughs>